Hello, Peanuts. Welcome to Sports, the podcast that uh, ends with a question mark, but has a lot of questions. I haven't changed the intro for the Thursday podcast yet. That's my bad, but it is Thursday. I'm Katie Nolan. That means I have a guest in today's guest. I'm very excited slash kind of nervous about. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Jay Billis. Hi, Jay. Hey, Katie. The sound of one hand clapping. I'm so excited uh, to have you here. I was just explaining to you in a very uh, quick way what the point of this whole thing is. It's that, you know, I've met a lot of cool people in this industry, uh, some of whom surprised me with how down to earth they are, or I'll be honest, the fact that they even know who I am. Uh, and you are one of those people. And I want to introduce those people to my audience and be like, Jay Billis essentially is a real one, I think is kind of the point. Um, but we don't know each other that well. You've just been really nice to me as somebody who, you know, you work on the more sports side of the industry and I'm more kind of, uh, tangential, I guess I would say. I wouldn't have expected you to have any idea who I am, but you, you do somehow and you're very nice to me. And so I guess first question is thanks and why? Well, <clears throat> one, I don't know that I have been, that's nice to hear, I guess. Um, but uh, you're a colleague of mine and a valued one, and you're somebody in the industry I knew before you came to ESPN and always thought you were not only really talented, but really genuine. And that comes across with you on the air. I mean, sometimes, like I think you noted that you, know, you don't always know uh, who you're listening to or watching, uh, but you can get a feeling uh, for people and, uh, and you, give a, you give off a very clear feeling about who you are. And, how trustworthy you are and how, you know, what a nice person. Oh, that's really nice. That's all this is, is I just want you to compliment me for about an hour. <laughs> Good. Uh, we should also know it is what April 7th, which means you just ended the busiest time of your, do you get to chill now or is that just like a myth? You know, you absolutely get to chill a little bit, but the NBA draft is coming up uh, mm -hmm. next. So you kind of dive into that. There's always stuff to do. But it's certainly less travel right now and kind of more, uh, you know, you have more family uh, obligations that you can attend to instead of saying, hey, I got to, you know, I have to be somewhere else. This year I was home more because of the pandemic, obviously. And it's funny, when I left for the ACC tournament, uh, I told my wife, hey, I'm going to be gone because I had to go after the ACC tournament. I had to go up to ESPN in Connecticut for uh, several days for Selection Sunday and all that. So I told my wife, hey, I'm going to be gone for like nine straight days. So, And she said, well, you said that last year and you were back in two days and stayed for a year. <laughs> so, so she was kind of looking true. forward to the time, time, time with me out of the house. I know. I mean, at this point, I think a lot of people can relate to that of the like, yeah, yeah, I'll miss you, blah, 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 but you can go. It's okay. You can go. <laughs> what was that like for you last year? I know, I remember I was in the grocery store uh, buying groceries for the first time in forever because I figured we might be locking down pretty soon when I got the notification that the tournament was not happening. What was that day like for you? And then what did, what did that do? Obviously, what effect did that have on your year? Well, it was similar to everybody else, but it was a little bit different in that I, I have a really good friend who's a, a physician. And this buddy of mine reached out to me probably 10 days, maybe early March, I'd say, March 1st, and said, listen, um, just friend to friend, you need to think, think about not flying anymore uh, for the rest of the year. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he said, no, this, this is pretty, this is serious. And, and this is going to change our lives. And you need to, you need to really consider that. And I had one more game day to do 
um, at Dayton. And then, uh, and then we were going to go to Greensboro for the tournament. So I flew that one more time to Dayton and he started sending me all these things to read about, um, about not only the virus, but about, you know, the, the fact that it was going to be declared a pandemic pretty soon and what that meant. And then what, that was the first time I'd ever heard flattening the curve. So I was reading all these <laughs> articles on it before I ever got to the ACC tournament. And so I was pretty well versed on what was happening, at least more so than I would have been otherwise, thanks to this buddy of mine. And then the Wednesday, it was the, the morning that Rudy Gobert tested positive. Mm. Uh, I was standing out in front of the hotel with Dan Schulman, uh, my broadcast partner, uh, who's from Canada. And he had just come from Toronto and, and had said, while we were standing waiting for a ride, he had said, you know, you, you guys in the United States are not taking this as seriously as you need to. And I, I, I remember that hit me like a ton of bricks. And when the, the, the next morning or that, that day, the World Health Organization declared it a pandemic. And I thought that was a far bigger deal than the Rudy Gobert positive thing. That was just sports coming to grips with the reality that the rest of the world was kind of dealing with before sports um, kind of got a clue, honestly. We, we were the last. Like the sports world was the last to, to get it. Yeah. And they, they canceled all these events all over the country. Uh, colleges had shut down already and their sports teams were still playing. I mean, there was such a disconnect. Um, so when I, when I went home, I wasn't sure whether it was going to be two weeks or a month or whatever, but I, I knew that, that when I went home, I, uh, after the, you know, probably that March 12th, I went home that night, um, after working the whole day, you know, sort of on the cancellation side. And I knew I wasn't going to leave my house for quite a while. And it ended up being, I mean, when, how long was it before you went back? I mean, went to work, but before you went back to, to, into the world. Because for me, it's like I, I've just started to go. I haven't had to leave. Some people, you know, could still do remote and stuff, but most of your job involves traveling. When did you have to start doing that again? It was a long time uh, until basketball season started again. Um, my wife and I canceled everything we were planning on doing that summer. We stayed home the whole summer. Our family, uh, our kids came home. We have older kids. Uh, so they were out in the working world. They came and uh, to stay with us during that whole period. So there were some positives to it. But I'm a. In addition to my my job with ESPN, I'm I'm still a. You know, technically, I'm a practicing lawyer. Although yeah, I don't. Yeah, just practice a lawyer much. on the side, folks. He's yeah. just casually also a lawyer. But that's pretty casual because I, I my my um, I'm still with the same firm I started with, uh, but my my title now is of counsel, which is a nice way of saying I don't do anything of real value anymore. <laughs> but I used to go into my office every single day that I was in town. If I was in town, I'd go into my office, I'd get some stuff done. I might leave early, but I, I went in. I haven't been in my office in a year um, because there's there's no reason for me to go in. You know, the, the, the lawyers that are hoofing it, you know, kind of day to day in our firm, they only go in uh, every other week and we have shifts of how we do things. So now that I'm, you know, we're getting into the vaccination period, I'll start going back into my office, but I'm not, I haven't been there in a year, which is kind of hard to fathom really. Is it like, uh, are you a guy, I mean, you work very hard. You have two very demanding jobs, even though you say that you don't really lawyer. Do, are you a person who's always work, 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 and this year kind of, and was it comfortable for you to take a year off, I guess is what I'm asking, or was it shocking or did you learn anything in this like forced stop? Because for me, I've just worked, worked, worked in crazy different weird jobs that I didn't, I don't think I anticipated how much just this abrupt halt 
would affect me. And then, you know, I've learned a lot and grown from it, I think. But that first stop was a shock for me. Yeah, everything was a shock for me. I mean, I, I think similar to what you're, you're feeling and saying that I, I definitely learned a lot. Uh, but, you know, my, what I consider work, like I don't think what we do is work. We put in a lot of time into it. And, and there is a lot of uh, commitment and effort. I'm not suggesting that it's not. But, you know, I worked as a, a lawyer for a long time. And that was real work. Uh, where where I, I had no choice in the matter, and uh, and it wasn't all it wasn't a lot of fun. I mean, it was work. Uh, so I don't count what I do now as work. I because I enjoy it so much. Um, it, it, the only thing I think is work about what I do now is travel. Yeah. Uh, the travel is is that gets on gets that gets to you after a while. And honestly, Katie, that's the only thing that'll get me out of of this job is travel. When I decide, you know what, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore and travel at this pace. And uh, you know, when you know all the TSA people at your Oof. local airport, Oof. you got a problem. You got a problem. And, you just start and to know- feel like a regular. You're like, oh, this isn't right. I am a regular. I know yeah. them all, Oof. and uh, and they're they're exceedingly nice, and I wouldn't want their jobs. But you know, you know, having your toiletries in a plastic bag for for that long of the year is is uh, probably not a good thing overall. But you know, the job's so much fun. I don't consider it to be work, even though we work, you know, we're, you know, doing our thing into the late hours of the night sometimes and all day long. And, um, you know, what I think most people, the funny part about my existence is my law colleagues would trade places with me in a second. (laughs) You know, they think what I do is so cool. And then my ESPN colleagues think that my law degree gives me the ability to walk away whenever I feel like it. Mm. And I don't, and I don't look at it that way, but, but that's kind of funny how, how they feel like it's some kind of leverage that, you know, that, that I can just walk out, hang out my shingle again and practice law. <laughs> like I don't need my job. You know, I really like it. Uh, uh, and I do feel like I need it, but, You're very um, good but at it's it. funny. It's funny that perspective that that people have about their existence that they look at somebody else and go, okay, that guy can he can he can walk away whenever he wants. That must be really cool. <laughs> you know really what else is funny? Way. Pablo Pablo Torre and I were talking about it, and we came to the conclusion, and I want to know if you agree with this, that people who want to be lawyers when they grow up really just want to be Stephen A. Smith. <laughs> Yeah, that's there, there's some. It's truth pretty in that. accurate because, like the the lawyering part of like the law part is is hard, I imagine, and not as fun necessarily as the like litigation, the arguing. I know I, I read somewhere you told a story about a time you caught somebody in a lie and you got to kind of back them into a corner and then be like, "Aha!" Which I bet is the best feeling ever when you can catch somebody with receipts. But the, most of law is not that, right? Most of law is like learning it and having to do all that. Seems like a lot of paperwork, Jay. Yeah, there is some of that. I mean, the, the, the interesting part for me is, is lawyers don't argue like we argue on television. You know, when, when, when I'm arguing on television and taking a position, I, 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 I take a, 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 an authority position and argue it to the death. And, and my arguments as a lawyer were far different. And, uh, and you know, the temperature is much lo- lower when you're making a legal argument or arguing a case. Um, and then, but it has helped me. I think my legal training, my, my law degree has really helped me, in, you know, with the, my television career in that, um, 
I, I try to stress test my arguments, you know, I'm, I, uh, so I go back and forth with my colleagues all the time and, and trying to uh, find the holes in, in an argument and the best way to explain something, whether it's an NCAA issue or whatever. Um, and that's helped a lot. I think my, my legal training's helped a lot. Because really, as a lawyer, what you're trying to do, at least as a litigator, you're trying to persuade. And so uh, when, I'm in a, when I'm in a legal setting or I'm on different committees, uh, when I, when I try to make a point in a committee meeting, I don't sound like I do when I'm sitting on game day, you know, where you're, you're pounding the table saying, this is the right thing. This is the way it is. You know, you don't do it that way when you're trying to build consensus. You could, you could, you try. could, you wouldn't last very, you wouldn't last very long. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I think I love so much about you is that, uh, so I didn't grow up with a connection to college sports, and we know I went to Hofstra. They abandoned the good nickname before I got there. They then abandoned their football team once I was there. They they haven't been like this beacon for me of like college athletics. So I just don't have a connection with it. I came to it too late in life, and it sometimes is hard for me to separate when I watch college sports the like. At sadness, I guess, is maybe the wrong word, but I just feel uh, like the athletes are being taken advantage of, and it's a personal opinion, and I don't ask anyone else to hold it, but there are times when I'm watching that I feel like it's not cool for me to support this machine that I think might be in ways taking advantage of the players, and you are somebody who isn't, doesn't shy away from talking about that. And it seems to me like that would be very difficult given the fact that you are a part of the bigger machine or covering the machine. And I, I find that that feels like it had to be a, I don't want to say that it's like brave of you to do that, but I feel like you must have some, like a very strong resolve to, to know, uh, you know, when to take a stand and how to cover things. And I'm just curious to know where that, where that comes from for you. Well, it, it started when I was in college. So w when I played uh, basketball at Duke, um, one of my, uh, I guess, advisors at Duke uh, on the, in the athletic department had, um, it, with the, along with the athletic director, had put my name up to be a, uh, an athlete representative on an NCAA committee called the NCAA Long Range Planning Committee. And they wound up selecting me to serve on that committee. So I was one of two athletes. The other was a swimmer. From uh, from UCLA, and I, I replaced the the outgoing an outgoing athlete who was a quarterback at Alabama, a guy named Walter Lewis at the time. And so I served for about two and a half, two and a half years, I'd say, on that committee, and that let me behind the curtain as to how policy was made and how the NCAA worked. And honestly, the people who want the the status quo to remain within the structure probably would have rather I never got involved in that because that's <laughs> how I learned how screwed up things were. And, and it helped me at a, at a young age, uh, as a young adult, separate policy from people because the people on that committee and the people within the structure were great and are great. Um, the policies just aren't very good and they don't make a whole lot of sense. And so I'll give you one example. At, at the time, and there, there, were, there were people on that committee that served as real mentors to me, you know, Bill Flynn, who is the AD at, at Boston College and uh, Wayne Duke, who is the commissioner of the Big Ten. Uh, at the time, and and I can give you a whole list of names that are so much older than you, you would never know them. But <laughs> they were they were so good to me and 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 so helpful. But when I was in high school, I got recruited by Lute Olson uh, at the University of Iowa, and he later went to Arizona and was you know Hall of Famer. Passed away just this last year. 
So when, when I was on my recruiting visit, Coach Olson had me over to his house. His wife made breakfast for us and everything. And on the breakfast table were, were the plans to the Carver-Hawkeye Arena, like the, the actual blueprints. And now that's a building they're talking about being so old, they probably need to tear it down. Wow. And, uh, and he had a 10-year contract. And he looked at me and said, I'm going to be here your whole four years. And so I wound up going to Duke. It didn't matter. But he left for Arizona the next year, what, oh what was the end of my <laughs> freshman year. And so when I was in that committee meeting, I, or th those meetings, I brought up, it is not fair that an athlete has to stay at a school and, and have a transfer penalty if they want to leave. Like if I'd gone to Iowa, coach leaves, you know, I'm, I'm SOL. And these older men were telling me, well, you just don't understand how the system works, son. Um, it, uh, you're not making a commitment to the coach. You're making a commitment to the university. And uh, it's like a marriage. And they, 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 it was so what? condescending. What? A marriage? So condescending. So I said, it's like a marriage. And I said, well, you know, with all respect, um, you know, if I get divorced, I don't have to live with my wife's parents. Like, that's not the way, it, that is, that's not the way this works. I never met anybody from the school. I only met people from the athletic department and the basketball program. They never, you know, I, I got picked up by a coach. I got dropped off the airport by a coach. I communicate only with a coach. You know, the coach is the, everything in the, in the decision-making process. Yeah. But I w it was dismissed out of hand. And at the time, I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I need to be a good soldier here. I, I said what I said in the meeting. I have that position. But the 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 committee's going in a different direction. So I am a committee member. I need to support what the committee's doing and and the policy because I'm I need to be on board with this. So I never said anything publicly. Never disagreed, even though I vehemently disagreed. And it was only when I got with the ESPN that I finally decided. It, it finally dawned on me that I'm like, wait a minute. I criticize everything except policy. Like, why can I criticize a rule like, a, a, you know, the charge block rule or officiating or a coach's decision or coach's contracts or players' decisions or player, uh, you know, what a player does on, on or off the floor? That's all fair game. I'm going, well, you know, so is NCAA policy. And I just decided, you know, I'm not going to be quiet about this anymore. I'm going to say I'm, I cover this sport. I'm going to cover the whole thing. And if people don't like it, like I, I, I separate people and policy. So I'm, I'm very careful to say the people at the NCAA are great, you know, just like everywhere else. Like not everybody that works in media is great, mm. but by and large, the people are great. They're nice people in this business. They're nice people at the NCAA. They're nice people in the member institutions, but the policies suck. And when they suck, I'm going to say so. Now, I don't, to your earlier point, I don't go into a game and go, God, I can't believe I have to cover this, you know, exploitation of athletes. No, I, I'm able to separate, you know, what's good about the game. And then when it's time to talk about policy, I talk about policy. But, but I don't do it, you know, at the Duke, North Carolina game, you know, in the waning moments, talk about, well, I can't believe these exploited athletes have to put up with this. Well, yeah, because um, you, have a, you have a personal relationship with the game of, you know, college basketball and just basketball in general. So it's like a, you, you understand the merits of it better than most. And you also understand the negative side of policy. Or is it going to get fixed? Because from the way outside, anything pertaining to the NCAA, I'm like, well, this is going to require me to do a ton of research to even start to understand. It's all very confusing to wrap your head around. And it just feels like it's always a winless game. It's just like there's no way 
that any of this is going to change. And if it does, it's going to change so slowly that it, it, is it going to get better? Do you think? Yes. Yes. Over time it will. And I think it's, I think it's actually moving pretty rapidly right now, given that you've got all of these uh, states passing uh, name, image, and likeness legislation, mm-hmm. and they're doing it because of it's a competitive disadvantage not to do it. And, and sort of that's the way competition works. It, it really shows that the athletes have tremendous value. Otherwise, you wouldn't see these states moving to do this in bipartisan fashion. Um, and, and Congress is getting involved. The Supreme Court's deciding a case right now that's, that could have a profound impact on, on college sports and the way it's run. You know, Katie, I kind of look at this whole thing the way the, the same way I look at it, 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 issues of social justice and gender equity and all that. Like, you know, this this last year was it was uh, I think more than anything any other time we saw how how screwed up the system is with regard to gender equity. Just with the tournament, the men's and women's basketball tournaments, and I don't see how it's such a difficult concept for the NCAA to wrap their heads around that the men's basketball tournament, and the women's basketball tournament are two weights on the same bar and we've not been able to lift that bar because the men's basketball side is weighted more heavily than the women's basketball side and it has nothing to do with the amount of revenue that's generated it has to do with systemic injustice um, on the gender side within the structure and and so like to your to your point like, do we have to just chip away at this or can't we just say, look, this is ridiculously unfair for a nonprofit that says it's about gender equity to have these sort of systemic problems. It, we, don't, we shouldn't have to wait a long period of time to fix this. We should fix this now. It should never have happened in the first place. Um, and I kind of feel that way about, um, you know, athlete rights. You know, they're not asking for any more rights than any other student has. They're just asking for the same rights. And, uh, and, you know, I don't think it's that difficult. It's just hard for people in power to give up that power mm-hmm. and, and, and give up that, you know, they feel like they're giving up money, even though they're not. And, and why, why the NCAA couldn't step forward after those, those uh, differences were shown in the tournament and say, we got it. That's that, this is wrong. And, and this is on, like the president step up and say, this is on me. I'm in charge here. And I'm the one to put everybody in charge of their respective um, responsibilities. And ultimately, is my responsibility. Yeah, I don't ever feel that from them. They do, I mean, they fixed it. And they fixed it quickly enough that it was like, so you just ha- you could have done that and you didn't do it in the first like they had the weight room that we all saw fixed within a few days i want to say and it's like well if you could fix it that quickly um you a should have started that way but b can somebody come tell us what happened just now like make a statement of some sort that provides clarity and i just feel like they say no because they don't have to well yeah and and the reason was that those are two separate things like they have someone that's in charge of both tournaments so there's an executive vice president in charge of both tournaments, but it's clear that the overwhelming majority of time and resources are spent on the men's tournament. Now, in one, in one uh, instance, I kind of get that because that's the gigantic revenue generator overall. But, but when you're talking about putting on two equivalent events, what you order for one, you should be ordering for the other. It, it shouldn't be that difficult. And what you will see is the weight room issue was just one small part of it that was the most that was obvious uh, because the athletes complained about it and put it out on social media 
the uh, you know the the amount of money spent on each tournament it's staggering the difference and it's not just because there there are savings involved in the women's tournament because the the first first and second rounds are played on home sites um, they they might save a few bucks that way but but the inequities are extreme and there's not a whole lot of explanation for it other than we just didn't care enough to do it and uh, and that's a problem. That, that's a problem in and of itself. And uh, to me, I don't see how that's so difficult that we can't say, um, you know, in, a, in, in the college space that we can't say, hey, if we're putting on a men's tournament to this degree, the, it should be matched by what we do for the women's tournament. And it is not good enough to say, well, the, the swag bags may be different, but they're of equivalent value. They were not of equivalent value. No, they weren't. And the food was not equivalent. Uh, and the floors that they used were not equivalent. <laughs> no. And there's there's more room for growth in the women's game. It's exploded in growth, and we're either committed to it or not. And it's pretty clear we're not committed to it. Well, and it also seems like we are comfortable invoking revenue generation when it talks when we talk about it like that. But we can't say that the men are uh, generating more revenue, and therefore, well, they shouldn't they be paid? Like it's this weird thing where it feels like the solutions to these problems are are kind of obvious, but someone's afraid to take that leap. Like name, image, and likeness, female athletes will be able to benefit from that greatly. Every mm -hmm. female athlete, every WNBA player that I've met, I walk away from it and I'm like, that is an impressive person that like I want to root for. And so being able to, you know, get out there and tell people who they are will make people more interested in watching them. But I worry that the system is not going to support that. They might almost stifle it. Like it annoys me to hear college coaches retiring and there being like this air of like, yeah, they're leaving because they're not excited about the changes coming to the sport, like name, image, and likeness. And I, I wonder if as a person who has been a, a college athlete, a coach you've coached uh, and a broadcaster, like does it make you – particularly angry when you see college coaches that don't seem to be advocating for the athletes as much as it feels like they should? No, not angry. Um, I, I just, there, there's a logic gap, I think, in, in some thinking out there. And I get it because it's always been that way. So we have had a lot of coaches and, and not a lot, but there have been a number of coaches that have retired and have used sort of the changing landscape of the game, the transfer portal, athlete rights, all these different things by saying, you know, I don't know that I want to do this anymore. And then there have been a ton of administrators, uh, ADs and the like that are retiring now, basically saying, you know what, not on my watch, you guys deal with it. And that's fine. Um, but, but my thing is if, if they're really saying that I'm like, then you should go. Mm. Um, that, that's fine. You should go. And, you know, there is in the back of my mind a don't let the door hit you on the way out kind of thing there when somebody says something like that. Um, but, but that's within their prerogative. Like, if they want to quit, quit. But, but my thing is, you know, it's funny. The ga game changed. Like, I, I was in college when the, the last time the NCAA was before the Supreme Court. And that was a, a case called um, – it was called the Board of Regents case. And really what it was about were uh, schools were suing the NCAA because the NCAA was telling schools and mandating when you could be on television. And their idea, the NCAA's idea was you need to be on television sparingly 
so that that we don't oversaturate the market with the product and people will still go to the games. The idea was if we have all these games on television, people stop going to the games and we'll lose all this ticket revenue. Um, and it was profoundly stupid to look at it that way. But the schools sued and they won. And then then television money exploded. So I didn't hear any coaches or administrators at the time saying, hey, we got a lot more money now, which means we're paying ourselves a lot more money. This isn't the way it was supposed to be. So I'm out. You know, so all the all the ones that are saying now and, and it's really kind of funny. They'll say we didn't we didn't get into this for the money. Mm. You know, we got into this because we love the relationships sure. as if relationships or money are mutually exclusive. But they didn't turn down the money either. Right. And and the implication the implication is the rest of us have gotten in it, into it for the money. And that's just not true. Um, you know, they, they've proven that those guys that are complaining about this have proven that you can you can make a ton of money, love your job and have great relationships with people while you make a ton of money. And that's all the players are asking for. Yeah. And like on that same point, I remember Dabo saying like if college athletes were paid, he would retire because there's too much entitlement in this world. And I was just like, what is that? What? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people feel entitled to be compensated for their what you're entitled. How do you not see that? Yeah, the unpaid amateur student is the <sighs> entitled one. And but that's the system, you know, they they talk like so when you see a coach berating a player on the sidelines, mm. uh football, basketball, whatever it may be, um you'll hear coaches say, "Well, they're just holding him accountable." Like, what the hell does that mean? What is, what? What is that? What does accountability mean there? And what, what happened to the bench was the greatest motivator. Like, then take the guy out, you know? So, I mean, I, I don't know. That's just, an, you know, it's an excuse for bad behavior. And that's not essentially what accountability means to me. But, but you know, look, people say a lot of different things. And, and Dabo's point, I get it. Um, I don't think with all the changes, you're going to see him walk away from a $10 million a year contract. He's not going to do that. But if he wants to, <laughs> if he wants to, that's great. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't get into it for the money. Mm. Uh, but but it's all that's all great. But I just don't see the problem. You know, nobody's telling uh, a non-athlete student on scholarship, and there are more non-athlete students on scholarship than athletes. Um, nobody's telling them, "Hey, you entitled, you know, little thing. Uh, you shouldn't be able to earn or accept whatever you want in the marketplace because." You're getting paid now to just to be a student without any obligation other than to remain enrolled. And but yet we say to an athlete that you're entitled that uh, I love this one. They'll say to athletes, um, you know, you should be grateful because you're flying around on private planes. Uh, you get the best coaching. You get the best facilities. You get the best food as if the coaches fly to the games, you know, on commuter jets. Right, right. And, and they're staying in different hotels and they don't, you know, they, they're eating sack lunches while the players are being fed. None of that's true. Um, it just, none of it makes any sense. And it kind of gets, it kind of gets uh, the, the, the excuses and rationalizations for why players remain uh, sort of restricted when no one else is. It gets, it gets tiresome, but you have to deal with it because, you know, you're, you're trying to, at least I am, you're trying to convince people, no, Think of it this way. You're just trying to, uh, here's an example. Like, I don't know how many years ago it was when the NFL officials were um, fighting the league for their mm. pensions and some other things. And I think they got locked out. It was either a walkout or a lockout. But, but let's say they got locked out. I think they uh, locked out because we had replacement refs for a couple games. Right. We had replacement refs. So 
uh, the, when the, when there were replacement refs, I'm sitting there as an NFL fan going, oh, my God, like, get the <laughs> referees back. This sucks. And then so when they finally settled it, the truth is I didn't really care whether the referees got what they wanted or whether everything was fair and just. I had football back. Mm. And I was a consumer of football. So I don't blame fans for not being in the weeds on this stuff because all they want are their damn games. Like they want to watch their team play. They don't, they don't, most of the time, they don't want to deal with this. But when we are talking about it, like on the radio or TV, they get really invested in it and they get, they get, uh, they get pretty, um, up to, you know, angered about it. And that's, that's fine because uh, I like the passionate uh, discussion of it. But the truth is, the overwhelming majority of the time, they don't care. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm not sure they sh- and they wouldn't care if the players got paid. They argued over the stipend. Now everybody's getting it. Nobody mm-hmm. even notices. Nobody cares. Um, they don't care whether the players are paid, whether they fly private or what they eat. They just want their games. Yeah. And the discussion of it to them then sounds like we're trying to take away their games. Anybody who's advocating for change, they're like, let's just keep it how it is. And I feel like the NCAA, like most leagues do, I think, and even teams on a smaller scale, take advantage of that. They kind of use the, the, the public's want for ignorance, the, the want for like, just give me my games. And they kind of, it, it just feels like I don't know. It just feels like this all is so obvious. Like when I hear somebody say, um, don't say they don't get paid. They get an edu- a free education at a, at, at a nice school. But they don't, I, I mean, I know college athletes who didn't ha- couldn't go to class sometimes or didn't have to go to class or uh, they leave after a year. And it's like, well, then they didn't get a full college education because the, the classes I took freshman year, if those were all I took, I you don't call that a college education for a reason. So it's just like, why do we keep, how long are we going to keep letting them get away with these excuses that don't make a lot of sense? Forever until, until it's done on the legislative side or the judicial side. Well, you're a lawyer. So let's go get into the government and do it. They're doing it. And, but most of it's self-interest, you know, they're everything. Yeah. The States have self-interest, but I'm, I'm honestly, Katie, I'm really surprised that so many States and and the United States Congress is that interested in this. Cause the truth, I I thought that they'd want to stay out of this because it might alienate their constituencies or it might, they might feel that their, their States institutions might be disadvantaged in some way, but it, it, it's become a, they see it, I think, as a civil rights issue. And, uh, and it's really hard to ignore. And I think the argument, the oral argument they had a, a week ago, 10 days ago, before the U.S. Supreme Court, um, long time, it, like, it's a fool's errand to try to, it's easier to predict the, the bracket in the tournament than predict what the Supreme Court's going to do based Which on oral we, argument. Which, we'll note, I, mine was better than yours. Yours was better than mine, yeah. Uh, I you, got three of the final the four. Help. <laughs> you're welcome for all the help. Well, you did um, motivate me to fill one out. I wouldn't have done it otherwise. So thank you, actually. <laughs> but, but you know, longtime observers of the court that are not sports people said um, uh, that, that they didn't feel it went well for, for the NCAA. And, and some of the justices said, uh, echoed exactly what we're talking about. And when that happens before the, the highest court in the land, that's really concerning sort of for the NCAA's position, I think, and, and the status of their position going forward. Mm, well, fingers crossed. I mean, not to hope for someone's demise, but just I feel like this, an organization that's been around this long that is so 
comes into kids' lives at a very pivotal time. I feel like they have a lot of control and they don't feel as much responsibility as I wish they did. And you're right that policy is separate from people, but I wish the people who felt that responsibility would step up. You mentioned before uh, when you were getting recruited all, you know, that I only spoke to the coach, the coach is the only one I connect with, yada, yada, yada. I, I come back to this idea a lot because we like to talk about coaches like they're leaders of men. And they like to invoke that phrase a lot about how they're, you know, leaders within a community. And then I feel like when we try to hold them accountable to that standard that they have set over and over for themselves, they sort of get away with a defense of, well, I'm just a sports coach. Um, can you just confirm for me as somebody who's been up through the system that a coach, a good coach is really there to help you? Because I think about when I was applying to college, I went, I picked my major based off of a, a college review, a Princeton review, whatever that website was called, survey of like, what should I major in? It told me public relations. I didn't question it because I didn't know anything. If I were making life decisions like college basketball type scholarship decisions. I can imagine that time is very stressful and I feel like it should be the role of a coach to help you navigate that, especially because we don't let players or prospective players have representation in any type of way. Yes. And I, I had all of those things, I think in the recruiting process, you know, I got to know the, the guys that recruited me and that was the basis upon which I was making my decision. Um, you know, I didn't have a very good experience with my high school basketball coach and, and I've always, um, regretted that I didn't have a better one because um, so many of my friends, you know, they, they would bring their high school coach to the final four or, you know, they, they had lifelong relationships with their high school coach and I, I, I didn't. And so when I went to college uh, and was being lucky enough to be recruited, um, that was, I, 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 at least at that time, I was smart enough to know this is, this is really going to be the only time in my basketball life that I get to choose who I play for. And I'm not screwing this up. I'm going to choose the one I want to play for. And, um, and so that was my, that was basically my decision. It was less about the school I was going to and more about the coach I was going to play for. And I came down to four really good guys. It was coach K who was the least accomplished of all the, the coaches I came down to. Uh, I mentioned Lute Olson, who was at Iowa at the time, Jim Beheim at Syracuse and a gentleman named Ted Owens, who was the head coach at Kansas back then. Um, and so I, it was just because they were the ones I liked the best and I could see myself playing for them. Uh, and you know, my relationship with coach K has been so important kind of in my life. Um, and it's been a 40, 40 year relationship. Um, that's pretty good. And he's still coaching, uh, at the place where I played that, that's sort of extraordinarily lucky for me to have had that kind of relationship where he's been, you know, a coach and a mentor and a friend to me for that amount of time. I, I can't imagine that anybody's had it better. That's crazy to just have that relationship uh, with such an iconic. And just to hear you say he was like the least successful at the, at the time. <laughs> it was like, well, now. Yeah, he'd I mean, never won. Coach K. Did Jim Beheim pick his nose during your, your recruitment? <laughs> I'm just so fascinated by this man and his nose. <laughs> yeah, no, he didn't. He, he was, uh, uh, Jim's a great guy. And it's really funny how, um, Somehow, sometimes when he says things in press conferences and all that, he, he comes across as, as a curmudgeon and he's yes. really not. He's You're, really a great can't, guy. He's not? He's not at all curmudgeonly? He's not. Well, he's I, late I onset. Say he's, 
I don't know. He's not at all curmudgeonly. Like there are certain things that that obviously set him off. He doesn't like being questioned in press conferences about strategy or his decisions, but and that's fine. <laughs> but um, but he uh, but he's really funny. He's really a good dude, and uh, and I love him. Um, but there are times when um, when when you know I've had to be critical of something maybe he said or did or whatever, and uh, and we kind of have to we have to talk and say, look, you know. I, I can't, I, and I did tell him, I said, when I, I defended you on all these other times because I thought you were right. I didn't this time because I didn't think you're right. And, How does that work? Yeah. Does he shoot you a text? Do you shoot him a text? Is it a phone call? Like when does the conversation happen after you say something and he's upset or whatever? Well, he's, uh, it's only been one thing that, that with him that he was upset about. It happened this year when I took issue with sort of him criticizing Jalen Johnson when he left Duke. Um, Which is the clip it, that I texted to you, and I was like, "Hello, you rule." Oh, that's right. Uh, because I loved yeah, it. I lo- it was yeah. like because it's it's easy for people to expect that you would just you know defend people you have personal relationships with, but I think that's why it makes it so valuable when you say you know what you truly believe in that situation. Well, and so in that instance, and there there have been others, not with Jim, but with other coaches over the years, where uh, the coach will text you or call you and say, "Hey, you know." Um, this, that, the other, I don't like this or whatever. And I, I always kind of use a line that Bill Raftery used years ago when, when, some, when somebody would complain, Raftery, Raftery would just kind of wryly say, uh, uh, oh, I must have missed all your thank you notes for the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and he would just diffuse everything. But I'm good with, I'm actually good with people who have a beef with something I say. One, if I'm not right, I want to know about it. Yeah. And, and, and I'm willing to, to test whatever my uh, judgments are, my, my comments are. And the other thing is I, 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 I took this tack a long time ago. If I'm willing to accept compliments, I better be willing to accept criticism. Mm. And, and I don't question compliments. Why would I question criticism? So what, the, what, and it doesn't always work for me, but what I try to do is the first question I asked myself was, was what was the criticism right and was it reasonable? Mm. If it's right, I need to act upon it. If it's reasonable, I need to consider it. If it's unreasonable and wrong, I dismiss it and I don't worry about it. Like I don't, I don't get my undies in a bunch over it. I don't feel, it's kind of like, and maybe this is a bad analogy, but if you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off or you have to, you have to get around somebody that's going too slow, why do you shoot them a look? Like, I don't need to shoot them a look. No, my, goal, my goal is to just get past them. Like they're in my way. I need to get past them. I don't need to shoot them a look and make them feel bad about, you know, driving slower than I think they should. So I, you know, I, I, I don't do, I probably have done it when I was younger, but I don't do that stuff anymore. I like, I dismiss that stuff. You know, somebody, somebody cut me off. So. That, you know, what, but see, but this sums you up pretty perfectly because most people shoot a look <laughs> but you yeah, know to too. not yeah it's uh, you just seem very i feel like this might not be the right word but i you seem very balanced to me you don't seem like your pendulum swings too far in either direction and i think that in an industry that rewards that really well they reward hot takes and really strong opinions you have those but they seem to be consistent more so than you know something that you're trying to do to get attention. It's like, if you have a strong opinion, you're not afraid to share it, but you don't make your opinion more strong for the sake of, you know, 
spectacle. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's something, it's not my personality to do that. I mean, I, I try and, and I also try to take the, the, the tack that I'm in this for the long haul. So I'm going to have an opportunity. I don't need to rave about something because I'm going to have an opportunity to talk about this, uh, something similar tomorrow or the next day. I, we get a lot of reps in our, our job mm. and, and not everything, uh, you know, not everything requires, you know, me to stand on, you know, get on a high horse while the horse is standing on a soapbox and, and do that stuff. But the other part of it, honestly, is like I, I've, I've been, it's kind of like uh, Bill Burr, I think, said this, you know, about him and his wife. He said, you know, I realize my wife is a finished product that's under museum glass and, and we need to keep working on me. That I was like, I'm the, I'm the building that has a scaffolding around it and is constantly being worked on. Um, like being married to the woman I'm married to has been really helpful to me because of how even keel she is and everything. Because I, I used to be more pendulum oriented myself. And, uh, and, and I, I've always been, I think this is a genetic thing. I've always been a world champion grudge holder that mm -hmm. if, if somebody jerks me around or, or proves themselves untrustworthy, I'm, uh, my first reaction is, that's it, you know, that's You're it. done. And I don't, I don't do that as much anymore. Although I'm, I'm quick to, um, like kind of be the CEO of my own life. And, and so if there's something that's not doing me any good, uh, I steer away from it and, and don't think about, I don't think about like, if I, if I decide like, you know what, I'm cutting this out, I'm not dealing with this person anymore. I'm not doing it to hurt that person's feelings. Right. I'm doing it for me. Right. And, uh, and so that, that's at my age now, I feel a lot more comfortable to do things like that because I'm going to do what's, you know, what makes me feel better about, about my existence, about I guess. Yeah. It's called yeah, self-care. Yeah. The kids are calling it self-care. Uh, some people use it as an excuse to do things that are others harm, but uh, this is just self-care telling somebody that, you know, it's boundaries, setting boundaries. Kind of. And I've done it to where I, like I've said, all right, you know, this, this person doesn't do me any good. It's, it doesn't not, 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 you know, do me any favors, but, but, it's a, it's a negative influence and, and I'm spending way too much time on this negativity. And I've, I've deleted stuff from my phone just saying, you know, wow. what? I'm done, I'm done with this. And not that I'm not taking the call anymore. Sure. But just saying I, I'm not going to keep going down this road uh, uh, and continue to go down this road. It just, it doesn't do anybody any good. And, uh, and I don't think that's a, a negative thing. No, not at all. Um, it's very, I, also I haven't very heard different from a grudge. But... That's very different. A grudge is more like, I hate this person. I, I'm very mad at them and will never forgive them. You seem open and willing to discuss and forgive, but you're also willing to forgive yourself if you want to just, you've decided it's unhealthy for you. And so you're not going to engage in it anymore. That's like- Unhealthy you know, is the right word. That's the yeah. word I was looking for. Things that are unhealthy and-, yeah. and yeah, and the grudge holding thing was always like if if somebody proved untrustworthy with something, and after you, you know, maybe you you hashed it out, gave them, you know, gave them, gave them another chance, whatever that means. But um, you know, tried to tried to move forward, and then it kept happening and happening. Then you're going, you know what? Eh, Humans enough. can have plus minus ratings as well. I would encourage yeah, it for yeah. people to have that in their lives of just like, start you know, you don't a keep box score. score. Yeah, but it's just like a little bit of like a, hey, I feel like you've, I've had somebody in my life recently where it's like, you apologized for something, I forgave you, and then you did the same thing, and it's like, well, that's, I can't, that's it. Like, we're not, yeah. you're not learning. And it's, you know, your journey, and you deal with it, because it's not mine anymore. 
Um, I'm trying to think of all the millions of things if I got to any of them. I wanted to talk to you about Young Jeezy, but I actually watched an interview where you met Young Jeezy and I was like, that covers it. There's nothing better I can ask him. But watching your energy in that clip when he walked in and then seeing the <laughs> clip of where he used, what did it feel like to have your name in a rap song? That had to be the coolest. It was awesome. But, you know, there, there's still kind of the thing about, like, I've got kids who are 26 and 24. And so, you know, they look at me, rightfully so, as this, you know, old, old doddering fool that can't, you, you know, doesn't know how his phone works, doesn't know how to, you know, his Do you Instagram not know stories. how your phone works? Not all of it. No, <laughs> I, I mean, some things, I mean, I'm not a complete moron, but we're definitely not as savvy as, as our kids are. And that's the way sure, it should be. But you're definitely cooler than my dad is. So there's that as well. Well, that's, yeah, I've got that as a baseline. Mm -hmm. But my, my kids are, are always like, you know, when somebody will say something, they're like, all right, well, you can think what you want, but we know, we know he's really an idiot. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of fun. I mean, I, I like that about my kids is they're like, our kids are, um, we kind of raise them to, to, uh, have a good sense of humor and to make fun of themselves. And so the first, you know, the first thing we do, like where I'm getting hit now, uh, my, my family took me to Miami for my 50th birthday, uh, mm -hmm. cause I was born the, the day before Christmas in 1963. So my 50th birthday, we're at a nice restaurant in Miami and, uh, and I didn't know what quinoa was. And so when I ordered my dinner, I said, uh, I said, and could I get it without the quinoa? Oh, and, um, and oh, so now with this new Geico commercial. Oh, I was uh, just thinking that you are actually are killing me. Yeah. I well, they're that. killing my dad too. They do the, um, Hey, the waiter or waitress doesn't need to know your name. And I was like, Oh God, that's my dad. Ooh, it makes me cringe. That's my dad. But it's true. And, and, and like, and when they hit me with that stuff, we laugh our asses off. And uh, I had put out something on Instagram the other day about um, Gonzaga, like how to pronounce Gonzaga, because mm. people say Gonzaga, and they've been pretty good for a long time. And so I put that thing out there. And immediately, both my kids were like, you are in no position to lecture anyone on, on uh, syntax or being able to pronounce things. And, and then I got started getting the, the Geico commercial and all the things. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, the first, I didn't know Nutella was... Uh, was pronounced Nutella when I first saw you it. You didn't I, call I mean, it Nutella. I call it Nutella, and uh, and they that's were. That's not that bad. That's not that bad. I didn't think it was that bad, but I think we some argued people over. People call it. it Nutella. Yeah, You're, we argued over it. As long as it wasn't Nutella, that would be weird. That's the only weird yeah. way to pronounce that. But Nutella. But I was like, it's not. It's not made from hazelnuts. <laughs> like, why, why? Why am I? Why am I the dumbass? Yeah, like, I'm not the know? jerk here. That's you guys. Yeah, yeah. It's made from hazelnut. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. What, uh, what are your kids like? What are they into? What, uh, what have you learned from them? Because I feel like that's the thing non-parents don't realize is you learn a lot from your kids. Yeah, my kids are awesome. Um, and they're awesome because my wife is awesome. But my, uh, my daughter's 26. Um, she went, uh, she's an artist. So her whole mm -hmm. life, like when she was a little girl, she was afraid. She was like the most timid, afraid kid. And she was like afraid of the vacuum cleaner. She's afraid of other people. She's afraid of dogs. And we thought she's got a developmental disorder. You know, is she ever going to be able to go out in public and uh, would only eat certain things? And, you know, she's turned out to be this foodie, worldly, and she's a competitive horse rider in the hunter jumper realm. Oh, what? And then she's, yeah, she's a, she rides, she's a hunter jumper um, and she's wow. ridden horses her whole life and, uh, and loves it. Like I don't, I, and I, I, I think I love basketball, but I don't love anything like she loves horses. 
Um, and, and then she's also a ridiculously talented artist. My wife's a professional artist. And then my daughter, when, when she was really little, my wife would bring like crayon drawing she did at school and she'd show this to me and, and, and she'd show it to me and I'd go, Oh, that's, that's great. And hand it back to her while I was watching a basketball game or something. And she would go, she's five. <laughs> Do you realize what this is? I go, no. I no, I have no. Is this advanced? I don't, I'm not an art prospector. So when she was about, I'd say, you know, in the 10, 11, 12 range, you could, and she still does this at a much higher level. You could give her a photograph and she could give you a pencil drawing that was identical to the Fascinating. photograph. I'm fascinated and, by that talent. I do not have even a dash of it. It's crazy. And now, you know, she paints and she's, she's very talented, sells a lot of it, sold it while she was in college. Wow. And that's, I've used her as an example of like, she made money in college and the world's mm -hmm. still on its axis. It's not that big of a deal. And then my son was a, you know, typical uh, boy you know, growing up um, and just followed his sister around, wanted to play every sport uh, and, and, you know, went to Wake Forest and he was a, a walk-on basketball player at Wake and now works for the NBA, uh, working on their junior NBA program, did you know, their digital media side. And, you know, you, you asked what I learned from my kids. Like, so my daughter, um, you kind of learn uh, about what, what healthy passion looks like. Like she doesn't do anything that she doesn't like, she does think she doesn't want to do. I don't want to make it sound that way, but she's not interested as much in what you think of what she does. She wants to be fulfilled in what she does. And so she's willing to take the, the path less traveled because it makes her happy. And, and I, you know, I, I never had that. And uh, I think I've got it now, but I didn't have that when I was her age and I didn't make decisions the way she makes decisions. And then my son is the most, um, He's the, he's the lowest maintenance kid that I've ever, ever met, let alone, you know, have the honor to be a parent. Um, I'll, I'll tell you this story. He'd probably kick my ass if I told Ooh, him. Oh, I love story. it already. So, uh, you know, we never really, he never really asked for anything. Um, so he's never, he's never asked for, you know, you always say Christmas coming up or his birthday. Hey, what do you want? He's like, I'm good. I don't really need anything. Yeah. I said, we didn't ask you what you needed. What do you want? <laughs> God, every and parent I've gotten that. Yeah. He's never done that, but he's, he, he's never asked for anything. So we, we, uh, we kind of kept on him saying, all right, listen, dude, you gotta, you gotta do this. You gotta tell us what you want. And he says, well, there, there's a pair of shoes I like. Is this pair of Nike shoes. So he tells his mom, here's what it is and sent her kind of a, a screenshot of it or whatever. And so my wife says to me one night, we're, we're at home and we just had dinner and she's on the internet and she says, uh, Jay, uh, you know, I looked at these shoes that Anthony wants and, uh, and I was about to order them. She goes, they're $600. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, Wendy, my wife's name is Wendy. It's like, Wendy, you bought, we bought Tori a horse. Mm. She has a horse. Mm -hmm. And he like, how much is I a horse now? How much do those go for? More than 600. Yeah, I figured. More, more than, they eat 600 a day. Oh my God. Um, horses. It's not quite, it's not quite that much, but they're ridiculous. But, but you know what, Katie, like, um, we, we, I always joke about how much the horse costs, but it, it is something that, that my daughter would be a different person without it. A hundred. Look, if your daughter's a horse girl and you can afford to get her a horse, you get her a horse. Yeah. It's just pure joy. And I'm not sure that it would have caught that it, it costs that much more than if she were an AAU basketball player and we sent her all over the country playing in all mm -hmm. these damn tournaments that these these players play in. 
And so like, you know, and, and I used to complain, I used to have to drive on occasion, not very often. I used to have to drive her to her barn and it would be, it wouldn't, you know, be a, a pretty good haul. At least I considered it. And I, I might whine to my wife about that. You know, I was going to go do this, you know, and, and, and my wife would say, it's the barn or the mall you choose. Mm. And I'd go, I'll drive her That's down there. The okay. I get yeah. it. You know, that, that it kept her, it was a healthy activity for her that she loved. And it also was a diversion from something that we felt like might not have been as positive of, of an influence on her. So uh, it was a like to your, your, to your point, it's a it's a privileged way to look at things because we, we had the means to do it. But um, but I wouldn't change it uh, because of, of how much it has meant to her and and how much how, uh, you know, beautiful it is. Uh, it's really, you know, you go watch her compete and she wants to win and all that. But she never, like, every once in a while, that horse will put her off. You know, it'll come up to a jump that the horse doesn't feel comfortable with, and, and it'll just stop, and she'll fly. Jeez. And, and she, she gets up, and the first thing she wants to do is make the horse feel better about it. And, uh, you know, she's, it's not the horse's fault. That was my fault. I took that turn too quick and stuff like that. And, and uh, it's really, really interesting. It's, it's, a, a, it's been a, a wonderful experience to watch it. It's, you mean you have to have real empathy to work with an animal on a team sport because it's an individual sport if you're looking at humans, but you need the horse to cooperate. And so, you know, to have to compete with something that you can't communicate with, I can imagine is very, very difficult. So anyone who can do it, I have endless respect for. Your daughter sounds like a cool kid. So does your son. He sounds a little, a little expensive taste, but he's, <laughs> he sounds like a cool, were they good shoes at least? Do you remember what they oh, were? Oh, they were legit. They were legit. I wanted a pair after I saw it, but, <laughs> um, but you know, but that's the thing. Like, you know, he, that was the only, and that, that's sort of the kind of my point about this. So the only time, like he gets screwed because the only time he's ever asked for anything, yeah, we, we know exactly, you know, like what it is and how much it is, you know, instead of like, you know, if he were higher maintenance, we wouldn't think it was that big of a deal. Um, but, but he, he's taught me about, uh, you know, he, he's, he's accepted um, roles really well. Uh, like when he went to college, his decision was, do I go to a smaller school where I can really play, where, where I'm, I'm good enough to play, or do I go where I, I really want to go, but I may not, I may not play. Uh, I'll, be, you know, I'll be a walk-on that doesn't get in the game that often. And he wound up being captain of the team his senior year. Wow. And, uh, you know, sort of, it, he persevered. Like, it's really cool to watch for a dad. Yeah, I can't imagine, especially in something that's so near and dear to your heart. Are you a sneaker guy? I never see your feet. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm a huge sneaker head to the how point many, where it, it Well, how many do you have? Would you guess? Right now it's in the hundred range, Jeez, but, Louise. but I've gotten rid of hundreds over the years. And, uh, um, I don't know where that comes from. Like what sort of problem the Y chromosome has. <laughs> no, uh, I love but, sneakers. I just, uh, it, the thing about it for a woman that stinks, or maybe this is just this specific woman having to have high heels, which I hate to wear, but jobs sometimes require, uh, having, I have too many shoes and I, and I can only have so much of those be sneakers just because of room. I don't want to be, I'm not one of those people who cares about having women's shoes, but I like sneakers, women's sneakers or men's sneakers, but I, I have to have so many of the other kind that I just can't fully have a hundred pairs of shoes. 
I can, I can have more. Yeah. I've got to limit myself. It's a, it's a disease, I think. And, and I wear a different one just about every day. Um, and I, I'm, I love it. Like I can remember the very first pair of shoes I bought with my own money. And, and that was the biggest deal when you got a new pair of sneaks and, and, uh, you know, high school, but, but when I was in, in high school, I couldn't really wear sneakers to school. Um, you know, my mom expected me to, present myself a certain way. So I, I wasn't really allowed. It wasn't like this, you know, you wore uh, dress shoes. Uh, well, I wore like top siders or things like that. Um, huh. and, uh, and, you know, we, we used to wear, uh, wallabies were a big deal when I was in high school. So wallabies. a lot of guys were, you've never heard of wallabies. No. And I'm going to Google them. It feels important. Yeah, Google. It's wallabies. an Australian thing. I think shoes. they're, they're like these, uh, uh, suede kind of oh, shoes. They're, na they're nasty looking. Guys wore those. Yay. That was a big deal back in the those day. Those look like it. slippers. In the seventies, those were a big deal. I went to high school in the late seventies, early eighties, and in uh, southern in, in L.A. in Southern California. So, but my mom, like, I, I wasn't really allowed to wear jeans to school, so I had to wear like corduroys or khakis or something like that. And uh, and so when I could wear anytime I could wear jeans, I, I had sneakers. Man, I was all over that. You come from a disciplined household. Your 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 childhood was disciplined, not, and I don't mean that in like an overly disciplined. I just mean like you had a. Do you have strict parents? No. Um, yes and no. Like my parents expected me to, um, you know, to stay out of trouble. Mm. But we were we were very much our generation was very much be home by a certain time. Mm. But your parents didn't really know what you were doing. And my mom had a pretty good, my mother had a pretty good spy network of other mothers. So they kind of communicated on, on what the kids were doing. And, and she was excellent at grilling my friends, you know? So if, if she was giving us a ride somewhere, she is grilling those guys, uh, in a nice way, but she was gaining information. She had an unbelievable way of, I'd get home from somewhere and she could she, she knew or, or at least suspected that it might not have been, I might not have been doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. So, so she would ask me questions and give me the impression that she knew the answer already. Mm -hmm. And so she would say, well, what were you doing today? And I'm like, Oh shit. Okay. <laughs> and so I had to make a decision. Do I fess up or do I write it out? Tough call. And, and yeah, usually it came down to, you know what? I'm probably not going to be in any more trouble if I write it out. So I might as well see what happens. And most of the time she didn't already know, but, but the times where she did already know, um, those were the ones where like, it kind of kept you off balance all the time. Right. Um, but I didn't, I, you know, there were no cell phones back then. So your parents didn't know where you were. They couldn't track you. There was no way for them to know, you know, where your car went. Uh, when I finally got a car, none, none of that stuff. So uh, we got away with a lot and it was kind of hard when, when our kids were younger, especially high school, because things are so restrictive now. It's kind of zero tolerance on everything. And when I was a kid, our, our parents kind of had a healthy uh, expectation that we would screw up, you know, that, that there were certain things that kids do that were rites of passage, you know, that you'd, you'd do some underage drinking and find what your limits were. And so when those things happened, you know, you got in trouble for it, but it wasn't like this cataclysmic event. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, we had to tell our kids like, look, we got away with a lot more than you can get. You can't get away with this stuff. Even if we got caught, it wasn't as big of a deal as it is then. And, uh, and, and so we, we kind of had to tell them that like, you know, we, you, you have it harder than we did. 
you know, we didn't get, we got free passes on some of this stuff. Like when I had a baseball, we were talking about this the other day. I had a, I had a baseball, I was on a baseball team in high school. And we took a, we took a trip to San Luis Obispo, California to play at a baseball tournament. And we wound up staying in a motel somewhere. And one of our, one of my teammates brought boxing gloves. And so he had two sets of boxing gloves. Why? So we had, because we were idiot kids. Yeah, right. So we're like 16 years old. And, and at this motel, in the stairwell of the motel, we had boxing matches. So one of the guys, one of the guys knocks out another guy, uh-huh. knocked him out. And then later on in the day, like, we, you know, we were all worried, like, what happened here? This is, oh, this could be a problem. So he came to, and later on in the day, he passed out in the outfield. And so our coaches uh, were telling us, you know, you guys need to drink more water and hydrate and drink Gatorade and all that stuff because it's hot out here. And they thought that somebody got dehydrated when he had a concussion because he got knocked out. Because he got knocked out in a stairwell. Like, that's the best venue for that. Well, but that kind of thing happened. You know, we're more aware now. And and I think our kids and my, my kids, their generation are more aware of what right and wrong looks like. You know, no, nothing that happened in high school was malicious for, from us, but there was a lot of stupid. Mm-hmm. And, and our, our kids are not as stupid uh, and they're not as reckless. And, uh, and, you know, like Fast Times with Ridgemont High, Fast Times at Ridgemont High came out when I was in high school. Mm. That looked a lot like my high school. Crazy. Like, you know, that, that wasn't like, we laughed at it because there was truth in it. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, now those things are, are so, they look so ridiculous that, you know, kids wouldn't be able to relate to it. Yeah. Which I mean, is a good point. I feel like we expect kids to be perfect and not make mistakes. And because of that, they are better at it, but it also, we are meaner to them when they make mistakes. Now it's like mistakes are kind of a thing that we try to all avoid all the time instead of treating them like, Hey, you make a mistake so you can learn the lesson so that you don't make the mistake again. That's we zero don't tolerance. To do that. Zero tolerance doesn't work. It's yeah, just not right for anything. First yeah. time I learned that was when I got into sports and had to do something about domestic violence. And I'll tell you, I've learned more about a, our judicial system, our court of appeals, our, uh, the way that we handle issues like domestic violence from working in sports than I probably ever would have learned elsewhere because it's, you know, an important topic. So you want to know about it before you talk about it. But the concept of, uh, uh, no to- zero tolerance being uh, counterintuitive. Like it doesn't actually help and it makes things worse for the people that we're supposed to be trying to help in that situation. Right. I think that's right. And, and the, the hardest part is when you're a parent uh, of trying to, um, you know, I, I think when I came out of high school or when I was in high school, going to college, like the way you kind of found out what your limits were, were to exceed your limit. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's probably specific to drinking a little bit, but you know, when you, how, how do you know what your, your limits are in drinking if you don't exceed them? How do you and know so, you're not supposed to eat two boxes of cinnamon toast crunch if you don't at one point eat two boxes of cinnamon toast crunch in one sitting? Or thin mint, uh, Girl Scout cookies, yes. which well, I haven't learned that be, limit. those ought to be rationed by the government. Yeah, it should not, be illegal. It should be like a schedule three. Yeah. Yeah, those shouldn't should not be sold in bulk to uh, to addicts like me that by uh, cute girls who I can't say no to anyway. It's like the whole thing is just very I don't know, it's predatory almost. I don't need you coming over here being cute, trying to get my money and trying to give me delicious cookies. It's just not fair. There's no way to say no. 
<laughs> oh, all right, Jay, I feel like I've kept you long enough, but I still feel like I'm going to look back at this and be like, you had 7 million questions to ask him that you didn't ask him. The point of all of this is you're a very cool guy and I appreciate having your voice in the media because I feel like, you know, you say what you think, you're, you hold yourself accountable for what you say, and I appreciate that very, very much. Well, that's nice of you to say, and I think I think you know how big of an admirer I am of yours because I told you that a long time ago. But um, you're a, you're not only a star uh, in the business. Um, I think people can see uh, what your heart is like uh, through your work, and that is that's unique. You don't see that very often. And when I said that is unique, I used unique correctly because my <laughs> wife my wife is a uh, some sort of grammar Nazi. And mm -hmm. when, when people, if you want to piss her off, say very unique or, or that's the most unique thing I've ever seen. Pablo Torre, I think has the same issue of like, you can't be more unique. It's unique. <laughs> <laughs> she kills me on that one. And I'll get texts from my friends that say, oh, uh, I just said very unique on the air, apologize to Wendy for me or something. <laughs> I love finding those out because now I'll notice it when I do it and I can fix it. But if you heard it here first, folks, he said that I'm the most unique person <laughs> in sports media. I'm very, very unique. Uh, literally. Jay Bills, literally, thank you so much. <laughs> it was so good to have you and thank you for making time. And if you've ever got more time, you're always welcome here. We love you. I, I, I'd love to do it anytime you say. All right, that's it for this week's edition of sports. I'm still nervous. He's gone, and I'm still nervous. Um, I know we didn't get as deep, and maybe we'll get deeper next time. I just think Jay Billis is cool, and whenever I see somebody who's cool, this is what always worked for me when I was younger, is I would just, like, study them so I could figure out how I, too, could be cool. Now, I haven't yet figured it out, but I did learn a couple things from Jay there, and I hope that you did too, and I hope that you like him as well, and you'll let us know in our subreddit. If you haven't joined our subreddit, do that. It's a very fun, cool space. I also hear we have a Discord. I don't know how that works, so ask somebody in the Reddit. Uh, shout out to the Flame Bears podcast. Also, shout out to the Mina Kime show featuring Lenny. If you like dogs, you should support Lenny. I mean, it, how you feel about Mina doesn't really matter. It matters to me personally in terms of our friendship, you and I. But if you just like dogs and you're not listening, well, how, how can you say you really like dogs? Lenny's out here working and you're not even, can't even be bothered to listen to a podcast. So, uh, oh, it also, I mean, Travis wrote this. It says, if you don't like dogs, support me and listen. So yeah, you've really backed yourself into a logical corner here. I can't find a reason for you not to be listening. Big thanks to you guys who are currently listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. I hope that is clear in uh, in everything I do and in this the mission of this Thursday podcast. And I hope you're liking it when they happen. And again, I'm sorry. Uh, listen to this one twice. Twice seems right to me. Two seems like a good number. It's not asking too much of you. Jay's an interesting guy. I'm not asking you to do this with somebody you don't, you know, know about. He's... Young Jeezy knows who he is. You should know who he is, too. So, Or you could just always leave us a nice review wherever you're listening to this podcast, which, by the way, we read and we love them, like this one that Travis put into a document a week ago for me because he cares from Carl that says, quote, I was really disappointed when Ashley left. Well, I mean, I feel like Carl, not to interrupt, but we do have to specify she didn't, like, leave 
The disappointment, I think, I think what Carl means isn't, he's not disappointed in Ashley. I just want to make sure that's important that everybody knows. I was really disappointed when Ashley left, but I really enjoy the new sports. Sports? Christina is a pleasant addition to the team. Katie Nolan is awesome as always. Why, thanks. And is super relatable. Travis is also relatable, but in more of a, is that what I sound like kind of way? Note for Travis, consider using a cropped screenshot or the snipping tool to copy the podcast reviews into the pod doc. I agree. Carl, I like that you're out here paying compliments, you know, being generous, uh, and also just sharing um, things you think actionable steps. I'll tell you, he didn't listen because it's typed. It's typed right here in the doc. So either he didn't understand what you meant or he didn't care he was going to do it his way. And now I know Travis. It could 50-50 there. It could go either way. It's a real jump ball. Uh, lastly, don't forget that you can always leave off a voicemail at 860-506-5571. Say goodbye, Travis. Say goodbye, Christina. They're saying it spiritually. Jay Billis is saying goodbye to you as well. Bye. Love you. Mean it.